everyone. Welcome back to the Internet Report's Pulse Update, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss what's up, what's down, what's working and what's not working, and generally keeping our finger on the pulse of how the internet is holding up. This week, we're discussing payment problems for Square merchants, data center-related disruptions at Applied Digital and the University of California, Berkeley, and issues experienced by Russia's .ru domain. I'm Barry Collins, and I'll be hosting today with Mike Hicks, Principal Solutions Analyst at Thousand Eyes. As always, we've included chapters in the episode description below, so you can skip ahead to the sections that are most interesting to you. And if you haven't already, we'd love you to take a moment to like and subscribe. For all our YouTube listeners, don't forget that we also release this show on all the major podcast platforms. So feel free to follow us over at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. On with the show. And we start with that disruption for Square Merchants. I asked Mike to explain what happened. Yeah, it's interesting, this one, Barry. So, so this was a problem essentially with the two-factor authentication or the identified niche with two-factor authentication. So as you know, two-factor authentication is where you make requests and then you have to get some challenge coming back. Now, what occurred in this place, it appeared to be some issue with the back-end system. So where what was issuing the SMS calls with, with the authentication code to go in, which meant that they couldn't authenticate, which meant they couldn't log on to the system. So the system was up, they could, just couldn't, couldn't get to it. Two-factor authentication is great, essential even, but doesn't it also double your chances of disruption? It does. And, you know, it's also very necessary. So we have to have these, these sort of two factor authentications. And actually going back to this one, what they're able to do is identify where this problem system was. They said, okay, we have an issue with this, whatever it happened to be issuing the SMS. So they recommended a backup. And if you look at the two factor authentications, when you do it, there is alternative methods. So if you look, it'll say, okay, my normal method is to send SMS. Then if that fails, can I push an email? If that fails, you know, do we want to make a phone call where you just authenticate yourself by voice? And so obviously this then depends on how you're situated. You might not have your phone there. You might be in a system where you can receive data over your phone and all these things. So it gives you the uh, different options there. So in this case, it didn't create this single point of aggregation failure because I could still work. I just couldn't use my preferred method of communication as it were. Square was suggesting affected customers use alternative means of two-factor authentication. Does that show the importance of not creating single points of failure, as we've often talked about in the past? We're always rabbiting on, or I'm always rabbiting on, about this concept of the complete service delivery chain. Where are my components in there? Uh, what it, what's involved in that? Be it an outside power system, be it uh, you know a third-party API, all these things, and identifying how all those parts operate. Because when we do that, we can identify, like you said, do I have any single points of aggregating failure in there? Obviously, two-factor authentication is like one of my foundational things. I need to authenticate to identify who I am so I can actually get onto the system to actually start to transact with it, as it were, in this case, be able to see if I've been paid or not. Therefore, then, so identifying these components, what they're able to do is to say, right, if this area of it fails, now we can actually shift over to this, This which is exactly what they did. So, right, our recommendation to carry on working is use an alternate method. I put it to Mike that the problem for providers such as Square is that issues with two-factor authentication can sometimes be out of their control. A mobile network outage that prevents customers accessing SMS, for example. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, you know, they'll have a local provider who they'll connect into, but it all goes to be downstream. It could be into your provider, you know, so where you're connected in. Because again, we have these autonomous networks as they were sort of joined together, even from a cellular perspective and backhauling over the internet. So absolutely, it could be outside of their control. So again, identifying where these problems are, 
they can actually implement that workaround, that alternate process to actually sort of maintain the connectivity. Applied Digital has suffered an almost month-long outage at one of its data centres. I asked Mike to explain what the problem was there. Yeah, so it, it appears to be some sort of issue with an outside power utility. So just to give it some context, Applied Digital, which provides sort of co-location services for a number of organizations. Previously, they were doing sort of big cryptocurrency mining operations, but they're still now pivoting to sort of these intensive AI generative workloads around there. I say that to sort of give it context because what happens is they're actually receiving power. So there's some sort of issue within the, the uh, outside utility providing that power to them, and it means they're not getting all the power they need. So if you know, we consider, um, and again, I've sort of talked about this previously, I'm out in sort of rural Australia, I have a three-phase power supply. If I drop one particular phase, I can't run all the systems in the house. I can only run some of the lights. I can't run the air conditioning and, and these types of things. So this is what appears to be happening here. And if you consider the types of loads they're actually trying to run at this facility, it means that they need to require a lot of power. So any sort of dip or any reduction in that power or drop of phase that they're getting into that power is going to be to, to cause sort of problems on the system. So they have to shut some of the systems down to be able to understand what they are. And again, this comes into the interconnected dependencies around there. So oh, you know, boiling that all down, it's, it's a lack of power into the facility or reduction in power into the facility that appears to be then sort of causing this issue that they can't therefore run all the systems they need to. Issues such as these highlight the importance of power redundancy. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, every data center is designed to have sort of the redundant power. We have these systems where we have uh, un uninterrupted power supplies. But then you have to consider the systems we need to, to uh, maintain. And if you think about it, emergency lights is a great example. So if I'm looking for emergency lights in the building, it doesn't light up the whole building. It lights up the exits. And effectively, you could build a genset to or generating system, redundant power system to be able to cope with my entire data center. But that becomes really sort of you know cost prohibitive. And why would I do that? And it's also under the assumption that I'm not going to lose power for a great length of time. I don't want to be run on redundant power forever and ever. Yeah, which is what's happened. They, they could have quite possibly sort of had a mix of power to keep the facility going, but. We don't want to run it indefinitely for a cost and for a number of reasons there as well. So the, the point that is then what will happen in a redundant system is it is capable to effectively keep the lights on, back to my emergency light situation. And also, if you think about a UPS system, they're designed to then understand, okay, I want to have a graceful shutdown. We've lost power. It's going to be a certain amount of time. We need to keep these, these key systems up, but we can afford to shut these down. But we don't want it to suddenly go off because when you have an ungraceful shutdown, you can cause sort of problems and corruption in systems and, and sometimes sort of long-term damage, which means then the recovery out of that process takes far longer. So it's easier to shut these systems down, run on effectively on a skeleton service. I'm not saying essentially is what they're doing now, but that's the considerations you come into play when you're thinking about redundant power. Meanwhile, it appears at the University of California, Berkeley, they may have been experimenting with power backups for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And we say experiment, and that's only assumption. We don't really know sort of what they're doing there. But they've been running on their backup system for a long while. So exactly what we talked about, this situation where I don't really want to fully replicate the system, but let's understand what I can run on this power system itself. We're starting to see this huge shift into compute demands uh, for these large workloads, these you know, generative AIs, um, these sort of data lakes coming there, which are lots of queries coming in and out, which require more power. You know, they generate more heat, which is why we're seeing the, the increase or the change in chillers for these data centers. 
but then we're also requiring more power uh, to, to sort of run them and to run them smoothly. Again, we can't have dirty power. What I mean by dirty power is sort of these phases shifting up and down. So I get spikes in voltage coming up because again, because I have smoothers in these systems, I can also cause problems when I have this dirty power coming in. Power supplies are able to cope with it, but it can still cause problems. So the fact then that, like I said, this has been running on this temporary power for an extended period of time, we're led to believe or we make the assumption that potentially they're actually sort of looking of how can we get away with running these workloads? What can we do? How can we push this to limit? How can we stress test this environment? And again, I say we're only assuming this because of everything we've just talked about. Why would I run a system on redundant power for an extended period of time if I didn't have to? Now for two quick roundups of issues Mike has spotted over the past fortnight. First, problems of reaching sites using Russia's .ru domain. So what appeared to happen here was something foundational in terms of DNS. What happened was sort of a load of Russian uh, internet users were actually able to reach the .ru domain. So the, the main sort of Russian domain, which sort of hit a number of sites such as Yandex, which is their sort of main search engine, which they'll actually look to, uh, to search things through. So what appeared to have happened, and we got this from one of their advisories, that there's this certification, this security essentially in Nova one you can actually put on top of the DNS so that you can authenticate to say, yep, this is the authoritative server. So I'm actually asking for this address. It's the right people. So this is DNSSEC, uh, DNS SEC, uh, which sort of adds a zone signature to it. Now, we had a similar situation with the .au domain late last year where there was a problem with that certificate itself. So when you get a mismatch in a certificate, and this is a public key cryptography. So when you get a problem with that certificate and it doesn't match, effectively what you're saying is, I don't trust that source. And therefore, then I can't go on and resolve the, the name. And then this is what we saw. We actually saw when we we're trying to resolve specifically and trusting that DNS server that we were getting or when we we're looking for a trusted response from there, we were saying we're getting this failure and therefore then it couldn't resolve. And you just saw the, uh, the, the test stop. We couldn't go beyond the first stage. The second incident was a worrying attack on a children's hospital. This is quite sad. So we, we had this children's hospital in Chicago. It appears to be the a victim of a, of a ransomware attack. So, you know, they did what a great thing to do is once it's identified, they took the network offline. So the network sort of went down. So it's obviously then accessible from them. But obviously, we still have the maintenance of this hospital still need to go on. You still need to sort of do the patient records and things like that. So again, what we witnessed here said the right thing you do, take your network offline to sort of prevent anything else, and therefore then you can clean it up. What they then did was instigate these manual processes. So this meant sort of maybe entering records manually, setting up an external call center where sort of calls could be taken, and sort of resorting to sort of manual processes to to make sure that the, the hospital still was able to function. Hospitals are increasingly coming under attack from ransomware. And it's not only the treasure trove of personal data that makes them an enticing target, according to Mike. The attack plane is reasonably large. And if you think about sort of lots of ransomwares, it typically can come in through some sort of phishing attack, uh, somebody clicking on the wrong link. And because I have to have these people having access to all these systems, there's potential for sort of backdoor. So although they do a very good job of actually covering these systems, putting these firewalls in place, you still got to rely on this human factor involved there as well. And I said, so it's this combination of this, this very sort of large attack plane coupled with the fact then we have this rich amount of data that is, is essentially all linked together. You know, once I'm in, I have access to this information and, and sort of pull that stuff out there. Now we've reached that part of the show where we look at the overall outage trends. 
So, what's Mike seen in the outage numbers over the past fortnight? Yeah, so this has been kind of an interesting fortnight where we started to see. So the start of February actually coincided with an increase in uh, in global outages. Now, when we, we compare that to the previous week, so we're sort of getting into early February or end of January into early February. But we actually saw these outages rise quite significantly. So from global outages observed, we sort of jumped from 126 to 265, which is actually over double. So it's a 110% increase. And then the following week, so the February 5th to 11th, there was another increase again, reasonably small. We're talking around 20%. But in, in the contrast, if I come back then into sort of the early weeks of January, it's actually still significant because, again, I've risen that 110%, then again, that's sort of another 20%. Now, if I flip that into the US, the, the the story was slightly different. So I saw that first week, I saw a decrease. So I went from 55 to 45, which is 17% drop. When I sort of compare that to the previous week. Uh, and then it, it, it did sort of double at that point. But again, I'm coming off a reasonably small base. So I went up to 102%. If I take those sort of the two things together, we've talked about in the past where I actually look at the US centric outages and we've talked about this radiation of uh, outages coming there. And we saw that they typically account for or contribute 40% of the all outages we, we, we saw. So because of this sort of large rise in global outages, we would sort of expect that to go. But remember, we saw that drop in US outages the first week. So this two-week period, they sort of only accounted for 23% of the total outages we observed. If I go and look at those figures and why it was 23%, what I can actually start to see is that most of these seem to occur within the APJC region. And they're sort of uh, tied to uh, cloud service providers. So I saw this increase in cloud service provider outages that contributed to the overall global outages and therefore then saw my US-centric outages in terms of how much they contributed drop down to 23%. APJC means Asia, Pacific, Japan, and China, in case you're unfamiliar with the term. I asked Mike what might be causing the outage spike in the APJC region. When we saw this dramatic jump in numbers, that's the first thing I did. I sort of drill into it to see, okay, what could be causing this? And see a number of things when we go in there. So I actually saw a very regular cadence of these outages. Uh, so they were sort of frequently happening. Um, and then they were sort of taking sort of number of servers at a time, but it were kind of restricted to a specific region uh, within the APGC region. So there's a number of things we can actually sort of tie that down to. It might be in some sort of engineering work. It might have been some sort of maintenance sort of schedule. We might have been upgrading systems. It might have been some changes to a firewall, which actually then sort of saw some traffic effectively being blocked as it goes in, into that system. But the, the, the key thing that I sort of want to take away from that is that although these numbers were sort of large, if we actually look at that from a global perspective and then we look at the outage we had this week, none of them were attributed to that. So what we can actually say was, you know, the, the, the impact was sort of restricted to within that region. It was sort of contained within that region. But there, that may have been then because data served out somewhere else. We had these alternatives, you know, these backup processes, automated systems sort of took place. So users weren't or didn't appear to be significantly impacted, even though we saw this rise in numbers. Finally, let's look at the month on month figures. You may remember from a previous podcast that the outage figures dipped towards the end of December as companies eased off over the holidays. And then we're going to January, we actually start to see this sort of rise. So over January, we saw a 17% rise of global outages. And again, remember, I'm comparing this to December, where so the, the rise in outages observed was sort of 558 to 653. Uh, and again, the US uh, experienced like a 26% rise, where I saw 225 to 284. Now, if I go back, and I have actually just did this before we uh, went on air, I actually look at sort of year over year, and these are fairly consistent. And again, it's what we'd expect. We've come out of the holiday uh, period where we experienced or looked to this shutdown type of thing occurs, not much changes, let's not touch it so it doesn't break because people want to use it. We don't want our people being called in. 
but then we start to sort of come out of that break period and we start to instigate the uh, the maintenance techniques. And then we've had a few outages which have occurred uh, in this early period you know, that we've talked about in the previous podcast that then sort of contribute in a number of interfaces we've seen. That's our show. Please like and subscribe. We really appreciate it. And not only does this ensure you're in the know when a new episode's published, it also helps us shape the show for you. And for more insights on recent trends and some of 2023's most notable outages, check out our Top Outages of 2023 webinar. We'll walk you through how these outages unfolded and share tips to help you minimise the impact of future disruptions. It's available on demand now, or if you're in EMEA, we have one more live session coming up. See the links in the description box below. You can follow us on X at at Thousand Eyes. And please send us your feedback or questions to internetreport at thousandeyes.com. Until next time, goodbye.